Hello, I'm James Shaheen, editor of Tricycle the Buddhist Review, and welcome to another episode of Life As It Is, a monthly podcast series where Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Buddhist practitioners to talk about their work, life, and practice. For many of us, this past year has felt like an in-between state, as our usual routines and realities have been suspended. Tricycle contributing editor Antashi Slater likens the suspension to the Bardo journey, the transitional path outlined in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Born in Andalusia, Spain, to an American father and a Tibetan mother, Slater is no stranger to navigating in between spaces, and her connection to the Bardos has deepened in recent years through personal encounters with illness and loss. In today's episode, my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Slater to discuss near-death experiences, end-of-life rituals, and what the living can learn from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I'm here with Ann Tashi Slater and my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Ann. Hi, Sharon. Hey, James. Hey, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and it's so good to have you on. You wrote a piece for our May issue called A Journey Between Lives, and you recall how you reconnected with your roots through the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So first, I'd like to ask you, uh, what's the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and what drew you to it? The Tibetan Book of the Dead is an 8th century teaching, basically, or a guide for the bardo. Bardo means the between, and for the journey from death to birth. And it also, interestingly, is meant also to be for the living. And so there are other bardos in life, for example, from birth to death, and others that I think we'll discuss a little later in our conversation. And so it's a guide for how to navigate this between state. This passage from death to rebirth. Mm -hmm. And you have a family connection to the translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, it's um, something I discovered as I investigated my Tibetan side. And the editor of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, W.Y. Evans Wentz, went to India and he wanted to find a translator for the Bardo Toto, which is the name of it in Tibetan. And so he actually was in touch with my great-grandfather in Darjeeling, who at that time was chief of police. And my great-grandfather gave him a letter of introduction to the translator in Sikkim. And so I love this story because I, I feel like it didn't happen in 1919. It feels so real to me, it, like it just happened. And he basically walked this path into Gangtok, Sikkim, with this letter of introduction in his pocket on this rainy morning in 1919. Met the translator. And that's how this got off the ground. And so they worked together. And the book was brought to the West in English in 1927, published by Oxford. That was my great-grandfather's role in this. My great-grandfather was a devout Buddhist and very much prayed all the time to Guru Rinpoche, who is also known as Padmasambhava, is said to have composed the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the 8th century. And so the teachings in the Tibetan Book of the Dead were very familiar to my great-grandfather and mattered a lot to him. And so this was something that would have been very meaningful to him to be able to bring this book to the West. You know, it's funny here in the West, it's sort of watching how certain elements, even certain words of the teachings get somehow implanted more than others. And I think Bardo is, is one of those words, which of course means it's used probably in a thousand incorrect ways, but, you know, it's just a fascinating process. So I wonder if you could tell us more about the Bardos, what are the different stages, and do you have an idea what it is about that that has kind of 
made it something significant, more significant in the West? I think that essentially, I mean, it's actually a very complex book, and I don't profess to know all the, the depths of it. But from what I do know, what I came to understand is that there are three main stages or parts. And the first one is coming to realize we are dead. I didn't deeply understand that, but I could say, okay, that's a stage. So the idea in the Tibetan belief is that it takes the deceased up to four days to realize that they've died. And so the first part of the book is very much devoted to trying to awaken them to this fact. And so my grandmother always talked about this. She says, oh, you know, they hover around, they hover around the altar room and they're watching the relatives crying and they're like, you know, why are you crying? I'm right over here. And then at some point it dawns on them that in fact they've died. The first stage is coming to that realization and understanding that. And in the second stage, there are these frightening visions of deities and demons that are believed to be projections from our subconscious, kind of like when we're dreaming. And so they seem very, very real to us, but actually they're just emanating from us, right? They have no external reality. And so uh, Evans Wentz has a wonderful thing in his preface where he says that the thought forms that come up in the second stage are airy nothings woven into dreams. And so we think they're very real, but in fact, it's just the way we weave together a dream when we're sleeping. And when we recognize that, then we can be set free. So that's one of the interesting things. At any point when we recognize these things, we can loft out of this in-between stage. And then the third one is uh, judgment and rebirth. The deceased in the book talks in great detail about coming up before Yama, Lord of the Dead, and that Yama holds a mirror, which is our memory. And good deeds are weighed against bad on a scale, which is our conscience, right? And so interestingly, it's all internal again. You know, it's not like, of course, there's some external Lord of the Dead there, but that it's us coming forward. And my grandmother liked to say, she said, oh, you know, if the scale weighs that you're full of sin, then you're thrown into this hot boiling oil and you're done, right? With all the burns, you're finished. (laughs) And the idea is that, you know, it's a day of reckoning. And we see, and of course, in other traditions as well. And so those very broadly speaking, right, are the three stages. And in answer to the other part of your question about why is it so popular in the West, I think that it was very inspirational to Carl Jung, also Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, Richard Albert, who later was Ram Dass, and that they wrote this psychedelic experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead in 1964. And it's a guide to the psychedelic, you know, drug trip as a bardo journey, in this case, from death of the ego to rebirth into greater, you know, self-awareness. This book has, like, been a bestseller for years and years and years and years and continues to be. And millions of copies have been sold. And I think that it really speaks to this very strong desire that people have to awaken, right, and to move through whatever this is of whatever death of the ego would mean to them and facing reality and and awakening to the true nature of reality, whatever that would mean for them. And that's a very, very attractive, compelling idea for people. Listening to you, I suddenly remembered I actually read The Psychedelic Experience in college. (laughs) I went to college in 1968. Uh I went to India in 1970 through college. Uh And I'm I'm thinking, I bet that book had something to do with that movement, you know, because It's kind of outrageous that as an 18-year-old, I went to India to learn how to meditate. It's amazing. I can't remember anything in the book, you know, but I'm sure it played some role. It speaks to that archetype that is so strong of the journey, whether we think of it as bardo or something else, you know, and interestingly, as I said, one of the bardos is 
birth to death, that idea of being sort of pilgrim on the path, looking for guidance, looking for a deeper meaning to what we're experiencing, I think, as I say, is very compelling. And the experience of the ritual that's associated with the Tibetan Book of the Dead became very real for you rather than something that you thought about or talked about with some remove in the past when your grandmother died. Would you like to say something about that? So my grandmother died when she was just short of 100. Actually, in the Tibetan way of counting, she was 100 because it's from when you're in the womb. And so I flew immediately from Tokyo, trekked up from the plains up into the Himalayas for her funeral. And what had happened is up to that point, I had more intellectually understood the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but I really felt I wasn't getting something about it. I wasn't really getting the, the deeper meaning of it. And the literal translation of Bardo Todol, the Tibetan name of the book, is liberation in the intermediate state through hearing. And I had known that, but not in any impactful way, meaning I hadn't really understood. So when I got to Darjeeling, I got to the house and I walked up the stairs. And the first thing I could hear was the lamas, right? The monks in the altar room who were chanting from the Tibetan Book of the Dead for my grandmother. Her body had been moved into the altar room. And I went in there and there were all the, the butter lamps burning and they were reading from the text to her, talking about the things I just said about the three stages. And what became clear to me is that through hearing, because the idea is that she could hear them in the intermediate state, and she could hear the teachings and she could be enlightened and she could move on to her new life. And so the idea is, and, and this is really just common human nature, I think, is we cling, right? And so we cling, we don't want to let go of our old life. And so the teachings encourage you, you listen to the lamas. And one of the things that in urging the deceased to do is to face reality. And the reality is that you've died. So we're sitting in the altar room and we're listening. This is where the part that I mentioned before comes in about the book being as much for the living as for the dead. The relatives are listening and they are encouraged to let go. And what they're encouraged to let go of, of course, they're not dead, but they're letting go of this person who they loved. And they're letting go of the life they knew that included that person. And as well, they're encouraged to consider how attachment and denial might be hindering in their own waking birth to death life. And so I really understood that for the first time when I was sitting there in the altar room, because again, I had never really understood, like, what does that mean that it's for the living? We read it and we're enlightened or we're informed. And I had read it, but I didn't get it on that level. And so when I actually saw it <laughs> is when I realized how they're talking to her and encouraging her and giving her companionship, which I was very touched by as well, so that they never left her alone in the five or so days of the prayers before the cremation. And so the idea is that they are our spiritual friends. And so they're the spiritual friends to the deceased, and they're the spiritual friends to the living relatives who remain. And I got that for the first time when I went to her funeral. Why don't you say something about the obstacles in the bardo, things that people are taking to be real when they don't know that they've died? Is this sort of speaking to the person who lies in state a way to wake them up to the fact, one, you're dead, and two, there are delusions that you're experiencing that you need to cut through to make this passage? Part of the idea is that you're dead and you're clinging to your old life. 
that's a huge obstacle to moving on, to moving forward. The fact that you're looking backwards rather than forwards and saying, okay, this is what's happened. I face that. I'm not in denial about it. And I'm going to move forward. And one of the ways that I've come to understand it, one of the examples that really illuminated it for me is, let's say, for example, for the living who are listening to this, let's say that you're in a bad marriage and you're in denial about it. And so you just say, um, I, no, it's actually, we're good. We're good. And your friends are like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. And you just say, no, no, you know, we, we may have a few problems, but it's okay. But actually, maybe the marriage is over. Maybe it's dead, as it were. The obstacle to you moving forward is your denial of that reality. And so that moving forward may mean different things. It might mean you change, your partner changes, you both change, nobody changes, the marriage is over, whatever it may be. But that can't happen, whatever that way forward is, until the acceptance happens of what the reality is. And so that is one of the huge obstacles. And it can come up at any time. You know, you might accept one and not another as you move forward. I think of this time when I did a retreat on the border. I've done a few retreats with the Tibetan teachers on the border, and some great amount of it was highly technical. But the one line I got from it, which I use every day of my life, was basically, you don't need to be afraid of your phenomena. You don't need to be afraid of your thoughts, of your feelings, of these images that appear, the visions that you have, the sounds. You don't need to be afraid. You use this incredibly beautiful phrase in the article you wrote for Tricycle, where you say you came to see the text as one of tough love powered by compassion, which I think is very connected to this idea of not being afraid of the various experiences that you might have. So I wonder if you could say more about that. I actually especially realized that when I was writing this piece, the combination, as you say, of this very tough love. It's like someone saying, yo, your marriage is dead or you're dead. These are like really hard things to hear, but with incredible compassion. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, when the lamas are talking, you really do feel like they're your friend. You know? And they're saying, it's okay. This is what it is, right? And not facing what it is, is making you suffer more. Because I really noticed too, when I was at my grandmother's funeral, is that the lamas weren't upset. They weren't tense. It was all very conscious and everything done, this ritual in the way to support my grandmother in moving forward and also us. So a lot of what I've learned and what I've used uh, in writing this essay and in my other writing is from things that they actually told me. One of the Rinpoche who was in charge there, he's the one who said, we're a, a spiritual friend. And for example, at the cremation, when we went to the monastery after for the cremation after the five days, he actually tied a kata, which is the Tibetan silk blessing scarf, he tied to the coffin and led the coffin down the stairs out of the house. And the idea is that he's leading her. And then the same thing at the monastery, he actually held on to the end of the kata that was tied to the coffin, took one circle around the monastery, and then led her down to the cremation ground. It's none of this like, see you. I know this is really hard, but <laughs> you're on your own. It was like right to the end. This happens for everybody. This happens for everybody and it's okay. And so it's very, very hard for us to hear whether it's in life, you know, the birth to death or the death to birth. It's really, really hard to hear. But I was very touched. I mean, I remain very touched by this idea that 
over and over again came through of our not being alone. Well, there's something about cultural denial, too, which is very pronounced, you know, where in the West, so much of what we accumulate, so much of what we acquire, whether it's experiences or objects or people or whatever, is like a totem against death, which means a totem against change. Since change is happening all of the time and talk about a journey of fear, you know, we're like constantly afraid because whatever we get and have and own, we're going to die anyway, you know, and so... It's kind of a fruitless, fruitless effort. And and I think even within systems, within the Buddhist tradition, and, and maybe this is part of your grandmother's preparation, you know, it could be a daily reflection. I will die that I have to let go of everything. And I remember once I was in um, this group with the Dalai Lama and, and a friend of mine, she got the chance to ask him a question. And this particular friend is somebody who was extremely phobic about dying. She thought about it, but she was terrified. And the Dalai Lama told her that every day he does this reflection on how we will die, he will die. And, and she said, do you think it's going to help you when you actually die? And he just looked at her and he said, I hope so. <laughs> that's the idea. Which was, which was, that's the idea. It's like, uh, I don't know, but I hope so. And, uh, and of course, we don't know. There's a lot in there that I think calls for the sense of compassion and facing our fears. You know, I was talking to Sharon the other day, and Sharon, you were mentioning the pandemic as a bardo, its own kind of bardo. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something about that, Sharon? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if we look at a bardo as the in-between state where ordinary life which means expectations and things we're counting on are suspended. It certainly has been like a bardo for us, whatever our lives have looked like in, in the last, you know, more than a year now. And expectations shattered and, and our plans gone away and relationships shifting and the manifestation of relationships. It struck me that this has very much been like a bardo and uh, so I'm wondering about everything you've been through and maybe it strengthened you, you know, for this last period or what you think the relationship is. The whole pandemic has really struck me as a bardo because bardo also means when your usual reality is suspended. So it could be, as I said, death to birth, birth to death, but also illness, accident, even when you're asleep from when you fall asleep to when you wake up. COVID is a classic bardo. Our normal reality has been suspended. And it's been very challenging. And I have found that there are some things I've really had to let go of that were either ruined or damaged by this related to me or my family and my children. And actually, what I found most difficult was things related to my children, because I feel like, you know, I'm older now, and I've had a lot of experiences, and I've done things I can sit tight through this period. And it's, it's unpleasant. And like everyone, I want it to be over. But to see the young people whose lives have been put on pause by this, I have found that particularly has weighed on me. And again, I've said to myself, to what end? You know, it's not going to change it. So I've had to, to again, do that moment to moment, day to day processing of seeing like, you know, not to struggle against it, right? And say, this is what it is. And actually, it's a really unpleasant, bad situation at best. Given that, accepting that, keeping hope, you know, how to keep hope right? And how to move forward. It's fair to say, I think that we're always in a bardo and we can always wake up. I agree with that and become a joke in my family is because that I see everything as a bardo waiting at the post office or, you know, like my kids like to tease me, but it's really true that there are so many periods like that 
we're always in a position where we can make choices. Right? And so if you look at it that way, because again, the large bardo of birth to death, whatever happens within that, uh, there are other bardos, but we are always in that. And one of the striking things about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and this idea of the after death journey is that I think a lot of people think of it as kind of like lost in space, floating through the bardo. And, and if you take that idea and you apply it to birth to death, we can go through life that way too. But Guru Rinpoche's teaching is that we can also go through in a very intentional way, awake and conscious and choice-oriented way. And in that sense, we are always in part. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Many Buddhist teachings and practices focus on difficult mind states like anger, craving, and jealousy. But it's also important to cultivate positive states of mind. The seven factors of awakening, which include mindfulness, energy, joy, and tranquility, are an important set of qualities also known as the treasures within. Cultivating these positive qualities can bring greater ease and freedom to both our meditation practice and our daily lives. Enrollment is now open for the Seven Factors of Awakening, a new online course led by Bodhi College teachers Christina Feldman and Jaya Rudgard. This is an eight-week program of expert instruction formal meditations, and mindful investigations designed to bring the teachings into your everyday experience. The course begins September 13th. Learn more and sign up today at learn.tricycle.org. Let's return to our conversation with Anne Tashi Slater and Sharon Salzberg. And your relationship with the Tibetan Book of the Dead deepened when you yourself became ill. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So this was the second thing that really gave me a much deeper understanding of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as well as of my family kind of ancestral inheritance, as it were, of this wisdom. Some years after my grandmother died, I got very, very sick. I wasn't sick before. I just woke up really, really ill with something called endocarditis. I had a bacterial infection of one of my heart valves. The doctors never figured out why it happened. I didn't think that it would be that bad. I could see myself sort of going into this denial. And then I made the mistake of what writers and professors do, which is I, I did a little research. There was this computer terminal at the hospital, and I looked up endocarditis, and it was terrifying. You know, It said you can have a heart attack, stroke, catastrophic organ damage, intracranial hemorrhage, massive organ failure, and that there was significant mortality. And the thing that I realized is that you know I still was thinking, well, maybe I would have spontaneous remission. I went through this whole dialogue in my head and I was in the hospital for six weeks. It took them nine days to figure out what was wrong with me. Nobody knew. They thought it was malaria. They thought it was dengue. I had been traveling in Indonesia. What happened is they gave me some treatments and then it looked like the bacteria was decreasing in my heart valve. And so my husband and I were ecstatic. And the only person who wasn't ecstatic was the doctor. And he looked really, really, really grim. And he said, well, if there's that much reduction in the bacteria so quickly, um, what it may mean is that part of it's broken off and is traveling through your bloodstream and can lodge in your kidneys or your brain, and then it'll be a big problem. The next morning I woke up and my finger was numb. The doctor came and what had happened is that indeed it had gone to my brain and it had lodged in my occipital lobe. And so this was really dire. And the doctor said that 
it was very likely that I would be paralyzed or in a vegetative state or die. So as I was lying there, this story came to me, you know, about my great-grandfather. In 1912, he was traveling down from Lhasa in Tibet to Darjeeling, and he had worked very closely with the 13th Dalai Lama. And he was on a diplomatic mission, and he was coming back to India. And he got caught in an avalanche. And so this avalanche thundered down on his party and buried most of the men and the pack animals. So he and his pony were buried. Somehow he managed to stick his arm up through the snow and he was holding his prayer beads and he was praying to Guru Rinpoche. And the men above ground who were searching for the people who had been buried saw him and they pulled him out. And he was the only one who survived of, of all the people who were buried. And so looking up at the white ceiling of the room, I remembered this. And how the central lesson of the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the teaching is to accept reality, but not give up. I realized that he faced the reality of his situation, and then he did something. I mean, he took action, right? And that's how he saved himself. And it really gave me hope, because that avalanche was so analogous to how I felt. Like I had just been buried, <laughs> out of nowhere, and now was near death in my 40s, and thrown off out of my life as a writer and a professor and a mother and a wife, and that was all cast to the side, and now I was near death. Realized that this lesson came through our the mind stream, is what there's this you know, the idea of mind stream, and that Guru Rinpoche, when he composed the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it said that he buried it to be discovered by later generations when it was most needed. And he buried them in the ground, he buried them in the sky, he buried them in dreams, which I love, he buried them in the mind stream. This lesson from my great-grandfather, it felt to me like it had been buried in our family mind stream. And now, when I needed it the most, it came for me. I saw it and it gave me hope and I realized that, of course, I might not survive. He survived and it was very unclear if I was going to survive but that I could decide how I was going to move through whatever my journey was. Maybe I would live, maybe I wouldn't live, but I could go through that journey in a conscious and awake way rather than being in denial. And so that brought my understanding of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and also of impermanence. Even when my grandmother died, I mean, how long could she live? As I say, she was 100 and I was stunned. Well, of course it was coming and it's coming for all of us but we tend towards denial. And so it looks like I'm going to be one of those people who dies in their 40s. And I found that very hard to face, very difficult. My great-grandfather's story gave me so much hope because, of course, for him too, it had been incredibly difficult to face the seconds or minutes, however long he had. Six weeks in a hospital is a bardo all in and of itself. You know, I spent 10 days in the hospital a few years ago uh, with sepsis and the nurses were coming in and saying, what are you still doing here? <laughs> I was like, I'm still here, you know. But one of the things I saw was, and this is almost maybe speaking to the combination of face reality and don't give up, you know, it's somehow those coming together implies a kind of steadiness of effort. It can't just be like a flash and then you're done. It kind of reminds me of the first time I got up to walk in the hospital and I was using a walker and walking up and down the hospital corridors as one does. And I had a physical therapist with me. And at one point she stopped me and she said, you know, it's not a race. 
you'll go a lot further if you stop now and then and just take a break. And that also has become like a daily mantra for me. Like it's not a race, you know, it's like step by step, moment by moment, but that demands so much of us in terms of patience and application and realizing it's another day and I'm still here. Even just another moment. I mm-hmm. had to keep reframing, reminding myself of this and not to turn away. And interestingly, it actually is easier not to turn away, but still I was doing it, right? And it goes back to what I was saying about the Lama saying that you're increasing your suffering by being in denial, which of course we are, right? But we do it anyway. Instead of going, well, actually, here's the situation. This is what it is. It's actually pretty bad. This is how I feel about it. And it's very freeing to do that. And again, this makes me think of my great grandfather. It clears your mind to put you at choice. Do something, do nothing, do this, do that, whatever, but you'll make the decision. But you can't make the decision if you're all running all these different thoughts in your head about, you know, trying to uh, turn away from it. You know, you said something in a podcast that I listened to the other day with a medical professional about how the doctors did not sugarcoat anything and how that in many ways grounded you in the reality of the situation that you were in, that it was not by any means clear that you would survive this or that you might end up in a vegetative state. Normally we think of just plowing through without considering the reality of the situation that we might die. But it's interesting how you think of facing reality as actually a way to move forward in the sense that, you know, it might drag someone down to think, oh, it's true, I may die, this is grave. On the other hand, you're right, you get lost in a lot of fantasy and become paralyzed when you don't. But it's interesting that your doctors were so astute and so willing not to sugarcoat. It is interesting, particularly because in Japan, often that's not the case. Like traditionally, for example, if someone has cancer, you often wouldn't tell them. And so all the family knows, but the actual patient doesn't know. Because the idea is why make them miserable if they're going to be dying of this cancer anyway. And so I don't know if it was because I'm a foreigner or (laughs) what the reason was that, because I remember thinking, I'm like, well, that was direct. I wanted them in a way to be more positive and say, well, yeah, that looks good. 40% of the vegetation, you know, the bacteria is gone now. That could be a good thing. And he's like, no, actually, that's not a good thing. (laughs) And that seemed really harsh to me, but it was much better. And it was much better for my husband, who was basically my advocate and was liaising with various doctors and so on to save me, because then we could know the truth. And if we knew the truth of my situation, so for example, went to my brain and they did a scan and they showed us on the screen. I actually couldn't believe they showed it to me. There was this huge, black, dark mass, and they showed me how it was spreading and it just knocked me down. I wasn't like, great, I'm facing reality. I was like, this is horrendous. I was like, <laughs> and I actually had to leave. I left in my wheelchair because I couldn't walk well. And, and I, I just wheeled myself down the hallway and left my husband to talk to the doctor because it was actually too much for me to face that. And so I think that it's day to day and it's moment to moment and it's, it's a recalibrating. And that's where meditation can come in as well. Let's remove all this extra verbiage in my mind or, you know, that whatever's going on around me that is maybe interfering with seeing this situation clearly. And one of the things I really love now, it's much easier for me to do than it was before all this happened. It reminds me of those snow globes. You shake up the snow globe and you can't see what's in there, right? And I feel now that it's much easier. I can let that all settle and I can see what's in there. 
It's not that I don't know what to do. It's that all those fears and worries and so on, all the snow shaking up in the globe is what's making me feel that I don't know what to do. And again, I don't mean know what to do in the cosmic sense of there being a right answer, but what makes sense for me to do next. Well, you know, I, I just get this image of you lying there in the bed and it's almost like if somebody said, I see three possibilities, you know, you end up in a vegetative state, you die, or you're paralyzed. It was like, could I have a fourth? You know? <laughs> well, there was a fourth. <laughs> there was a fourth. Yeah, you know? a fourth. <laughs> yes, it turned out there was a fourth. <laughs> if it were amongst the three, different people would have different choices because they're all terrible. And I suppose it relates to what our deepest fears are as well. But maybe remembering there is a fourth, and, and it has less to do almost with outcome than with connecting to something bigger you know, bigger than this body and, and this even this mind. Which is the interesting thing as well is that interplay in a way or that tension or that balance between, because we can't control it. So that's interesting too, right, is the difference between being at choice, right, and choosing, but we can't control it. But we can do what we can do. That has been very liberating for me as well. I have a tendency or <laughs> had a much stronger tendency when I was younger to really want to control everything, even though one can't. And it's much easier for me now. I can see, interestingly, the parameters of where that kind of line is, what I can do, and then where you need to let go. And as you say, there's like a larger flow or force that's working. And when my grandmother died, she wasn't ill. And she knew she was dying, right? She basically died and it was about two or three weeks. Just her body started winding down. Didn't struggle against it or wasn't afraid of it. And she was not waiting, but she was just present. She was present through that process. To her mind, being afraid of death was like being afraid of birth or being afraid of the sunrise or the sunset. It's again, doing what we can do, but also realizing when we need to let go. You know, you both have experienced recovery periods from illness that were lengthy. I'd just like to ask a little bit about reintegration coming out the other end. We think, oh, you just get better and then things go back to normal, which probably isn't the case. Well, I think for me, you know, it's sort of embodied in being able to walk again. It's not just like a sudden let me leap to my feet, you know, like uh, first it was the walker and then actually never in the hospital graduated from the walker because I had an infection in, in one leg. That was the original infection that became sepsis. But my other leg and foot really started hurting, like this excruciating pain. And I kept saying, I feel all this pain. And they were like, you know, right. You know, and then uh, finally one doctor said, I think you have gout. And sure enough, I did. And so when I left the hospital, I actually couldn't walk at all. Again, I began walking with a walker, and then I could use a cane, and then I could walk, you know, and then I could take more steps. And then step by step, this is the new reality. What's the good within here? You know, like I had these you know, magnificent friends who opened up their, their house to me, which is where I recovered, and um, because I couldn't leave California on IV medication, so people who appeared for me and helped me and took care of me or even cared about me. And it was something I could count on when everything else was falling away. And I do think it prepared me in many ways for the pandemic because everything changed. And I think that if we consciously remember, it's going to sound a little cliched, but to look for the good and to accept support and that this is reality. 
it's always shifting and changing. It's usually not this graphic, but this is how things are. It's not just me, you know, uh, that we're never alone, however isolated we feel. Then we do draw strength from these times and, and we can face many things. So how do we find the good in it without diminishing its gravity or importance? It's not a process of replacing one with the other, but being able to hold it all. You know, this is dire, this is this is loss, whatever the truth is. And at the same time, it's terribly cliched in a way now, but that quotation from Mr. Rogers, where I don't know how old he was, he was a child, somehow upset about some catastrophe, some tragedy happening in the world. And he talked to his mother and his mother said, look for the helpers. You know, we certainly shrink away from looking at the painful side of things. Many of us are not brought up with the skill, just the sheer skill of opening to that and not blaming ourselves or feeling ashamed or different or isolated, you know, whatever it might be. And so that's a whole training almost. And and yet at the same time, that is fortified and we have a, a different sense of resource. We don't feel as overcome or defined by what's terrible when we can remember the good. And that can be very hard for people too, you know? It's like those exercises and looking at what you have to be grateful for. It can seem like the most cloying, upsetting sort of thing. Like, I don't think so. I think I'd rather complain again, you know? But if you can bring yourself to open to that, You notice that it doesn't mask what's difficult. It doesn't hide it, but it gives you a different ability to be with it all, which is very important. Did you feel that, you know, in that transition period after you came out of the hospital or was it a struggle during that period? And then afterwards you realized that? I feel like I felt it largely as a result of a thousand years of meditation practice. You know, like, I mean, something people often say to me is, I don't really feel drawn to meditation unless I'm in a crisis. Won't it suffice when things fall apart for me? If should things fall apart for me, for me to begin practice? And I usually have said, why wait? You know, it's like, it's not that you will not necessarily draw help from taking up a practice in the middle of your life having fallen apart, but why wait? It's like strength training. Just day after day after day after day of being able to remind yourself, face reality, this is what's true. You can get through this in some way or another. You have strengths within, you have capacities within. It's like every day, every single day, however boring it is, however meaningless it seems. I had 40 years you know, of practice behind me, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And well, now everything's falling apart anyway, so no one is quite in a situation of being complacent, but we don't have to wait. You know, it really is a significant uh, strength to be able to bring with you into some adverse situation. We can train our minds too, in the same way we can train our bodies. When I came out of the hospital, I really, I wasn't a regular meditator and I did not have an easy time of it. And I realized in retrospect that in the Tibetan belief, uh, there are obstacle years. I'm convinced that, that that was the beginning of one of mine because it was that illness. And then we had that huge earthquake and tsunami here. And then I had some deaths in my family, just went on and on. I realized that I thought I was going to walk out of the hospital and be like, hallelujah. And that's not how it was. I had PTSD. We all did. My whole family did. My husband, my kids, we were all shell-shocked from this experience that we had just been through. But 
in some sense, we didn't realize that. In retrospect, now I realize we really could have used something like therapy. They told me that that it could happen again. And so I was terrified that every time I had some, a headache or I had a fever or anything, and I would really, for quite some weeks, I would run to the ER and, and have them check me because I, I thought, what if I have an aneurysm? And I was really afraid that I was like going to go to sleep and not wake up. And so interestingly, as, as much as I longed to leave the hospital, I felt afraid to leave the hospital. So that transition was another bardo. You know, Sharon, you asked, like, what good is there in it? And I know that's always a challenge to orient myself that way, but I think it's the right way for me anyway. And I ended up having something called vestibular neuronitis, and I had lost all sense of balance. There's an inflammation of the auditory nerve, the vestibular nerve. I was not able to walk or even crawl. But I did find that if I covered one eye and held a book up and looked at it at an angle, I could read. And what I discovered that was good is that because I couldn't do anything else, there was no guilt about reading whatever I wanted for as long as I wanted without any fear of missing out because there was no possibility of doing anything. So it was a kind of space that opened up for me. I was not in pain, physical pain. The nausea was not good. But holding myself in a certain position and just being able to read and not worry about anything else taught me something about how I live. Um, I'm constantly driven to do the next thing, but that was a situation in which I was required to sit still, whether I wanted to or not. And I was wondering, Anne, what sort of lingering insights, because this has found its way into your writing, and I wonder if you say, maybe I should have gone to therapy, maybe you should have, but was writing in a way a means of working this out or finding your way through? A lot of this processing or integrating or figuring out has definitely been through my writing. I had like these diametrically opposed kind of microcosm of my American, New Jersey-born psychiatrist father and my Darjeeling-born Tibetan mother. Very, very different. And we had that split culturally in our household and the way we were brought up. And then the larger thing of being American, but Asian-American, an Asian-American at a time when there were very few Asian-Americans, right? and certainly not in my communities anyway, in the 60s. And I thought, again, in the piece that I wrote about, you know, coming to my roots through the Tibet Book of the Dead, that always for me as well, even just writing a piece is a kind of bardo, right? Because you don't know, you get into this suspended state. And interestingly, I don't think that I anyway would have put those things together without sitting down and writing about it. What I noticed in that piece, and I think I, I gave you feedback, was I was noticing sort of a dialogue uh, between your Western roots and your Tibetan roots, a kind of truce or coming together or integration. That is very much what much of my writing is about and figuring out because I'm not Tibetan, but it's a deep part, of course, of who I am, but only in a way that I excavated. <laughs> I feel like an archaeologist, <laughs> like digging for, for all these years to figure out what it means to me and what it means to be Tibetan American. And, and, and of course, it's not so simple of like, oh, here's the Tibetan part and here's the American part. My mother basically felt free and found herself by leaving Darjeeling and coming to the United States and settled there, never went back. And for me, I needed to go back there. I needed to go back to Darjeeling and dig into that and understand what part of me that was and what it means to me. 
writing is very much a part of that. And it's one of the most amazing things about writing is that you're creating, of course, as you go, but as you go, you're like, oh, I see. This is how this fits together, or this is what this means. Okay, so before my dog starts barking, I'm going to thank you, Anne, for joining Sharon and me. It was a real pleasure, and I look forward to your piece in the next issue. And we have a very nice way of closing these co-hosted podcasts. Sharon takes us out with a meditation. Okay, so let's sit together uh, for a few minutes. If you want to sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And we can start by, I'd say, see if you can feel the earth supporting you and just the quality of rest that can come from that. And space touching you. So many times we think of touching space, we think about picking up a finger and poking it in the air, but space is already touching us. It's always touching us. So here, too, there's a quality of rest. Bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath. See if you can find the place where you experience it most distinctly. Maybe the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen. Bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. One of my teachers, this man named Menindra, used to say, Be with each breath as though it were your very first breath and as though it were your last breath. It's just this breath, just this one. And here is our life. That much presence, that much immediacy. No waiting. It's like right here, one breath. When you find your attention wandering, you get lost in thought or spun out in a fantasy or you fall asleep, truly, don't worry about it. That's the signal that we can practice some letting go. Let go gently. And just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. Thoughts may arise, images, sounds, sensations. You can allow them to come and go without following after them, without pushing them away. Just breathe.
And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. And Tashi Slater, Sharon Salzberg, thank you so much. You've been listening to Antashi Slater and Sharon Salzberg here on Life As It Is. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Life As It Is. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Life As It Is is produced by As It Should Be, Sarah Fleming and Julia Hirsch. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.